What's up? I'm Amanda Costco, and you're listening to the Electric Runway Podcast, a podcast exploring the intersection of fashion and technology. Thanks so much for tuning in. You could be listening to anything else right now, but you're here with me to talk about fashion tech, so I appreciate you taking the time to be curious with me about the future of fashion. As I record this introduction, it's Thanksgiving Day in Canada, so I'm feeling extra gratitude. On today's episode of the Electric Runway podcast, it's a little bit of a different format than usual. Rather than hearing from one startup or founder, you're going to be hearing the audio recording from a panel I hosted recently at Startup Fashion Week's Fashion Tech Forum. The panel was on the future of fashion and included four speakers who all combined fashion and technology in innovative ways, albeit their businesses or the businesses they were representing vary in shape and size. Roger Chabra is a venture capitalist with a history of investing in fintech and innovative e-com companies like Frank and Oak. Fiona Hanna is a textile designer who you heard from earlier this week in a very special bonus episode of the podcast. Vincent Theriot is the co-founder of Ce Monsieur, a menswear startup offering made-to-measure for the modern male. And Mario Christian is of Daniel Christian Tang, a company that's using architecture software and skills to produce beautiful 3D-printed fine jewelry. As always, we have more info and pictures on electricrunway.com, but for now, take a listen as we find out how these Canadian entrepreneurs are thinking about fashion tech. Welcome, guys. All of you are here today because your businesses or the businesses you're representing uh, combine fashion and technology in new and interesting ways. I want to start by asking you to please introduce yourself and talk about how your business combines fashion and tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Roger. I'm a venture capital investor. I'm here representing one of my investments, Frank and Oak, that I invested in five years ago when they were very small, and now they're a little bit bigger. The question was, how do we mesh fashion and tech? We're a brand, so we are a fashion brand. We only sell our own uh, our own brand at our outlets, meaning our stores in our mobile app and online. I would say with technology for us, technology is more about data. So technology is just the facilitator for us to get data to allow us to drive decisions across our business, whether that's in merchandising, whether that's in supply and um, uh, supply chain, or whether it's in recommendations to individual consumers. So that's how we use technology. Hi, uh, I'm Fiona Hanna. I'm a textile designer. I work in small, seasonable capsule collections. And I use technology all the time. I use it, I draw digitally on a tablet to make my designs better. I use social media to collect, connect with my customers. I also sell online as an online platform. And I also do it, which is a bit dangerous, is to research new stores and trends, um, which always gets me really excited and makes me want to buy a lot of stuff. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Vincent. I'm from Surmazur. It's a concept that we started five years ago again, like Frank and Oak, but a bit smaller. Technology, I mean, innovation is part of our DNA. We started five years ago, as I mentioned, at the same time as the iPad. And we had an iPad in our store just to flip the PDF. So that was the first kind of wow effect we brought with our customer. But now, five years ago, it's a lot more than that. And I'll share it to you later. Hi there. So my name is Mario Christian. I represent Daniel Christian Tang and Joseph Noguchi. They're two brands of jewelry, accessories and luxury jewelry. So our um, our use of technology is kind of threefold. First off, we're one of the only companies in North America that uses 3D printing and digital fabrication technology to create our jewelry. Everything's one of a kind. 
And as that technology continues to grow, it becomes much more of an amazing tool in terms of manufacturing for us that allows us to do things and patent designs in ways that we could never do that before. On the software side, we know, we see that the future of jewelry, especially since we're, we're, we started as a bespoke jewelry company, is in the way that companies can offer what we look at is as a future of retail, which is mass customization instead of mass production. So since we 3D print everything that we manufacture, the amount of time it takes for us to do a custom piece as it would to do a pre-designed piece is the exact same. So our software online that will be in stores in February, starting at the Bay, uh, will actually allow you to take pieces of jewelry that we've already designed and manipulate them using presets, size, shape, kind of thickness of the bands, crystals, and uh, lets you take one of those designs that's part of a preset catalog and customize it just a little bit so it becomes you. And I think that that on the software side is where really where we see the future of, of retail, which is taking technology and moving from a system of mass production to mass customization. Great. So lots of different companies from small to large at different stages in their business using different technologies in different ways. Uh, Roger, I want to start with you. Frank and Oak just introduced a women's collection. It's online only, just as your men's collection started. I'm really excited about this. Anyone seen the women's collection yet from Frank and Oak? What do you think? Oh, it's awesome. I love it. I want everything. I'm just... No, I want everything. I'm just on a budget. (laughs) I want everything. So... How did you know it was time to tap into the women's market? And how do you plan to leverage tech to build your women's brand the way that you did with your men's brand? Great question. We're very lucky. And I invested in two founders who are much smarter than I am. And I put a lot of faith in them. And so does the rest of the board and the investor group. One of the guys who's on our board is uh, a gentleman by the name of John Curry. And John was um, the CFO at Lululemon for many years through their hyper growth stage. And so he's been an invaluable advisor for the business. And um, the guys are also very well connected to Ralph Lauren in the States. And the punchline, so I can make a story very short, those advisors had basically told us, and they had all made the switch from, in Lululemon's case, women to men. And I think in Ralph, I may have it backwards for Ralph Lauren, but they either went from men to women or women to men. And their advice to us was, you have to do this within, and it's, it's logical, it makes a lot of sense. You have to do this within the first five years of your business, otherwise you'll always be pegged as a brand for that specific gender. So we got around year three and four, we started thinking about it with that advice in mind. And it just made a lot of sense for us because we have a lot of women coming into our stores, a lot of women buying gift cards for you know either their significant other or their brother, or their father in some cases. So that was the, that was the main impetus was we always wanted to be a, a unisex brand and the timing was, was perfect for us because we were kind of in year four of the business. In terms of technology, so... Well, one of the main reasons I got interested in investing in uh, Ethan and Hisham, who are the founders of Frank and Oak, was just the amount of buzz they were able to create online and um, the amount of organic traffic they were able to drive and convert into sales. E-commerce and fashion, as you guys know, is an extremely capital-intensive business because you have to buy inventory and, most importantly, you have to spend money on acquiring customers. And... Um, you know, we're looking to do the same thing with women, which is, you know, leverage social channels, leverage word, word of mouth to spread the word about the, the brand and, um, you know, the catalog. 
Anyone here, any women who bought Frank and Oak before they introduced women's wear? I've bought men's sweaters from Frank and Oak. So that made, yeah, that made sense to me. So Vincent, much like Frank and Oak, your company also successfully blends online and offline in a little bit of a different way. For those who don't know, can you explain for us what is the service here experience? Yeah, basically, it's, uh, we start as brick and mortar in Quebec City in the middle of nowhere. It's a small space, maybe between two and 3,000 square feet, all white. And all you can see when you come in is fabric everywhere, between eight and 15,000 fabrics. And uh, it's the hardest part for a guy to pick those fabrics. So we have style consultant inside that will help you in this whole process. Once we pick the, the fabric, then we have our uh, own studio, we call it's a screen, um, it's touch screen where with the client, we'll show him colors, cuff, uh, all the kind of options. Then we take the measurement of the, the guy. And after between four and six weeks, now it's more about three weeks, the garment is ready. We make sure the fitting is perfect. And from there, you can buy online from us. So now we have the platform so they can buy shirts, suits, whatever, because we have the measurement of that person. So it was a process where, as mentioned, we start with a sheet of paper with the Excel file and we send all this information to our suppliers overseas. But now it's all automatic. So when we have over 50,000 clients now and it's just a lot of data to use and to use that technology, it's, um, it's more efficient as a wow effect with the client because we have big screen inside where we can show uh, Pinterest uh, mood and help the guy to visualize his f- final product. We also have a 3D visualization where people inside can actually see the garment, the final garment, because it's hard to find from um, six to four inches square of fabric what it's going to look like on you. So we help the guy because sometimes it's more about the woman that comes in the shop that will figure out the whole thing, but to help the guy to visualize that. So it's uh, it's a long journey with technology. We use it as a tool, and the innovation behind it is just. Uh, perfect for us. Uh, and so Mario, in the same way that Frank and Oak and Sermacier channel new technologies to create new business models, Daniel Christian Tang also uses a new manufacturing technology as we were talking about 3D printing to make fine jewelry. And I've always wanted to ask you this, how the heck are your products actually made and how are they so beautiful? So what's really unique about the process is that, so I came from architecture, I did architecture for 10 years, and the modeling software that we use for DCT Designs is actually architecturally licensed modeling software with the very sophisticated mathematical plugin. So what that means is when we design things, we actually code them. We don't design them in the same traditional way of you know, 3D modeling something. So when I say that, what that allows us to do is inherently have products that are patentable immediately and don't run the risk of being able to be faked. So without that code, because of the complexity of the designs and because you need that STL file to print the piece, you can't duplicate our pieces. Uh, they would come out a mess. So from a patent and trademark standpoint, that's you know one of the interesting ways that we design jewelry that no one else does. Then as far as the manufacturing goes, the only other industry that's really using 3D printing is up until now has been the wedding ring industry. And that's because most of it is custom made. So People can people go in, they design their wedding rings, and that stuff's 3D printed. And because it's sold for so much, 
it's become kind of normal in that industry. The rest of the the jewelry industry, strangely enough, has not done that because especially the big brands, they've been grandfathered into this system of mass production. And without mass production, they won't be profitable. So the idea of even them going into a system of mass customization or using this technology doesn't fit that business model because they've built their businesses on the model of mass production. They just don't have the margins. So the way that we design things, once the files are done, for all the metals except sterling silver, we print them directly in that metal from gold powder, uh, stainless steel powder, white gold, basically all the metals except for sterling silver. And then sterling silver still hasn't gotten there yet. You can print in sterling silver, but it's in, it's very low resolution and not really great for jewelry. For those, we print in a high resolution wax and then we create a one-time mold, destroy the mold, and then that's, and then, you know, do you do a little bit of post-production on the, on the piece? So they're perfect in every single way, every single time. There's no, you know, problems with production. You're working with robots and not people, which is kind of incredible. You know exactly how well, how much time it's going to take for you to create a certain amount of pieces. And now as the beds are getting bigger and bigger, we can, you know, do a hundred rings, for example, in one two or three hour print. So, and everything comes out perfect. There's no, you know, you don't have to worry about the product being defective. So that's kind of the the nutshell of how, how we use technology. And so Fiona, you're a textile designer. You make pocket squares, winter hats, and scarves. In addition to being sold at Bricka, the Art Gallery of Ontario, and the Distill Gallery, you also operate your business online. So I wanted to ask you, is it more work to create the textiles themselves or to market them and run the whole back end of your business? Can I say both? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it really varies. Right now, I'm ramping up for the one-of-a-kind show. So it's a lot of production right now. Um, before that, I was working on the spring collection, so that was more designing. And I take breaks from my production now to market that and pitch that to new stores. So it, it kind of varies, and I do like to mix it up. Um, and too much of the same thing gets really repetitive. But I think it's close to around 50-50 right about now. Varies, but that's where I'm at now. So let's talk about being a Canadian business. Canadian author Margaret Atwood says that survival is the key element of Canadian narratives. And that's my like literature background coming out. But what do you think it takes to survive in Canada today as a fashion tech company? I would say it needs money. I didn't have a VC. <laughs> so I'm not here to ask anything. But uh, we did boost, we bootstrapped the whole thing on our side. So we didn't have any money from uh, the bank. We never had a loan, actually. So we work very hard, and from every single sales we made, we just reinvested. So it's maybe to have some help from governments and stuff, but on a good way, not just as a social way to help new startup, but to actually have something good. And in technology, it's so expensive, and we try so many different things, and it's all from our cash flow, basically. So at one point, it's very hard to have your focus on your business and the fashion way, but to bring that well effect with technologies every day and you have to battle with all those big brands around the world, it's a challenge. It's and are most of your customers in Quebec? Like, are they in Canada? Or- hey, customers? Yeah. Uh, actually, nobody knows us. Uh, actually, one or two hands I saw, but our biggest store is actually in Toronto. So, yeah, okay. it's actually uh, Toronto, Montreal. We just opened our first two in the States, in Chicago and Pittsburgh. Yeah. I hear you why Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh is great. And it's uh, <laughs> but it's a, a good a good first uh, first start for us there. Mario, I think you're saying most of your customers are in Quebec. 
Yeah, so my answer was going to be start in the U.S. <laughs> so, number one, the money's worth a lot more. It's an enormous market. And, uh, yeah, that's basically how we started by no kind of – we didn't know what we were doing when we started four years ago. And we had started with Joseph Noguchi, which was entirely online. And we kind of followed where the e-commerce boom was using specifically social media, Facebook, when Facebook came out with their ads and started – we're doing much better with their with their delivery. That's where we put all of our investment, and we kept reinvesting, reinvesting in the U.S. market. And the first e-commerce company has grown almost ex- exclusively in the U.S. You've probably never even heard of that company. It's ten times bigger than DCT. This year is actually the only year that we're. This is the first year that we're actually moving into the Canadian market. So we've been we've been in the U.S. for the last almost four years now. So. Really, what you want to do is, if you're going to start off in e-commerce, find out where the best market are first, and then go there. Because e-commerce doesn't mean I mean, we're not brick and mortar at all; we're entirely e-com. So, the idea is, you know, find out where you can where that market is best for you, and then you know, make sure you can ship there. So, our New York warehouse does ten times more shipping than the one in Toronto. And then we're, yeah, we're retailers here with whole Renfrew in the Bay, but they don't do anywhere near the same amount as, as online. And I mean, the Frank and Oak people would definitely know that too. So. Yes. Well, 80% of our customers are in the States. It's always been that way. You know, for the entrepreneurs in the room, I think it just, it, it needs to line up with, you know, what your aspirations for your business are. There's nothing wrong with making a local business. You can become fabulously rich doing that. And, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Frank and Oak's a much different playbook. And, you know, we're out to disrupt Zara and H&M and Club Monaco and all the rest of them. But I think the common thread that I see when I talk to local businesses or I talk to large businesses is it doesn't matter if you're in Canada or China or Vietnam or the U.S., you have to have a point of differentiation. And that's the number one, you know, thing that attracted me to, to Frank and Oak. And one of my favorite quotes about fashion is, you know, people don't buy products, they buy better versions of themselves. And you have to, you know, you have to play into that. And I, you know, I, I knew I was going to say it today. So in the Uber <laughs> over, I tried to search to give someone the credit. It's, it's like, it's like, it's like anonymous. It's like anonymous. But the point stands is you, you need to play into, you know, how do you make someone a better person for buying your product? And how are you different from either someone across the street or across the world. So I you know being a Canadian is never factored into any of my investment decisions. It's always about, you know, the fundamentals of the business business. And I think especially for fashion and for consumer products, it's all about differentiation. Yeah, Fiona, are you, your customers are all in Canada? No, no, I have I have customers in the US and actually um, abroad as well. I have a small percentage in Europe and Australia. Do you have hopes of growing to the French size or Absolutely. I would love to be around that size. I would I prefer to stay away from the brick and mortar model. I'll leave that to you guys. You guys are pros. <laughs> um, and do more e-commerce and sell uh, B2B rather than having my brick and mortar. But I also really enjoy connecting directly with my customers um, through online, through a couple different platforms and social media. This is kind of going off script, but I want to talk about this idea of like showrooms because both uh, Sir Monsieur and, you know, Frank and Oak, the, the retail experience is now moving more towards being a showroom, not necessarily having everything 
in stock and just giving people an idea of the brand and aesthetic. And then most of the transactions are happening online. Is it is there a future where I can't physically take something home from Frank and Oak and it's all just handled handled by uh, you know an external shipping party? Specifically for us, no. So we run our retail outlets as separate P&Ls. Uh, I mean, they all roll up into the P&L of the business, which is what we track on a monthly and quarterly basis. But our P but the P&L of our individual retail stores, not just collectively, but individually, they all have to be profitable for, from day one. I think what you're playing into is kind of the fixed billboard kind of paradigm, which is, you know, you're walking down the street and you don't know Frank and Oak from online, but you come in the store and then potentially you see something and then it gets shipped to your house. We just don't approach the world that way. And I know different brands, you know, I've talked to the Harry Rosens of the world and Joe Mimrans of the world. They all approach it in very different ways. But for us specifically, it's it has to be run as a profit for each store. Vince, do you want to speak to the idea of the showroom? Well, for us, it's totally different because 90% of our sales are brick and mortar. So it's totally different. Uh, on our side, we need that first connection with the client and build that trust. And from there, we can have that long relation. So at one point is to bring the technology and the wow in different ways, but it must have that showroom. But at one point, I wish to have no clothes at all in the showroom and just wear glasses and then you see everything and all. I mean, it's just true, true, exactly. And you have your own showroom at home. So that will be less expensive (laughs) square feet wise. So... (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Now we're talking about like augmented reality and the kind of store of the future. And I think that's the next question I'll ask before we wrap up. What technology are you looking at next in each of your businesses to get to that next level? So we, we've dabbled a little bit with augmented reality that really didn't go anywhere. We went down to LA. I had a friend who, who, who's a, a little high up in a company called Daiquiri. That's one of the leading augmented reality companies. And we designed a strip that you could print and then look on your wrist and actually see one of our bracelets in real time. Um, yeah, through yeah. your mobile. So it's, it's as if the screen kind of shows you, yeah. obviously, augmented reality, something that doesn't, isn't actually there. It was very expensive. It was really choppy and weird, and the technology wasn't there yet. It was also very difficult to get customers to print this thing off, cut it, and then put it around your wrist. So I'm, I think in a retail environment, that's a really cool way to do it. I think if if we ever move into something that's a physical space, you can hand out these strips that have, you know, data points on them and then you load them up with five hundred different bracelets and actually see what you're looking at. That might be interesting. So we played around with that, but that's it's not gonna go anywhere yet. But actually we tested two and we're gonna launch it's a new technology with Google. It's called Google Google Tango. And you don't need a key, actually. So you don't need the wrist. And from there, you can have like it's right now, it's only with the Google tablet. And you can see it directly on you. So we did exactly the same with a shirt. So now we're testing with a shirt. And it's going to be in store maybe. In, I always say shorter than what it, is, what it is in reality. So let's say in a month. But uh, basically, yeah. So like the style consultant will be on the screen, the regular screen where we have. And the client will be with the tablet and will see all the changes from the fabric and he can zoom on it, he can play around and he can do pretty much everything. So it brings that 
physical aspect. Still, you can touch the fabric and then you can see pretty accurately uh, and no key so you can move. The only thing right now we have to figure out is that we have a lot of furniture in the store. So people actually like kick themselves and stuff like that. So it's kind of dangerous, but uh, we'll figure out something. But it works. It works well. You should see for Google Tango. I actually don't want anything that fancy. I want buy buttons on social media. I think it's coming. I keep saying some channels, but not all. It's not that well integrate. Like I just that's all I want. Which channel do you most want to buy buttons? Instagram. I'm calling you out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I can re- I can relate. We're we're not doing anything too fancy. Like AR and VR, we don't even think about it. People pitch us stuff every single day. Uh, different vendors. We're at a different stage. We're in a hyperscaling stage. Um, you know, we have two and a half million members now, 15 stores, and I can't tell you the revenue, but it's it's large. So it's just, it's block and tackle for us. I will tell you that all of our stores now have power outlets in the uh, change rooms. Because nice. <laughs> maybe one day we'll have smart mirrors, uh, but that's People about as... Charge yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, or whatever else they do in change rooms. So, <laughs> so that's about as sexy as we get. about where we wrapped up that panel and opened it to audience questions. And again, that was the panel I moderated at Startup Fashion Week's Fashion Tech Forum in Toronto, Canada. We're going to miss you next week as we'll be in Moscow covering a very special fashion tech announcement from Russia Fashion Week. Be sure to stay tuned for content coming out of Russia. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel because we're going to be taking you inside Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week Russia to give you a sense of the fashion scene there as well as how they're thinking about the future of fashion and technology. Of course, you can follow along all of our fashion tech adventures on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at electric underscore runway. That's it for today's episode. Until next time, here's looking towards the future. Music from today's episode by Andrew Applepie.